Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In recent years, loosely defined web-based communities have attracted increased attention for their growing political engagement. Examples range from the seemingly more passive spaces like the online message board Reddit that has hosted notable politicians including Barack Obama and Ron Paul during their respective presidential campaigns to more aggressive groups, most notably the quasi-organization Anonymous that has attracted attention for its attacks on the Westboro Baptist Church, supporters of SOPA, and even the Israeli government. This week we talk with Gabriella Coleman, who draws upon a recent book, Coding Freedom, the Ethics and Aesthetics of Hacking, and our current research on Anonymous to help us make sense of it all. Today we are joined by Gabriella Coleman. Gabriella is currently the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy in the Art, History, and Communication Studies Department at McGill University. She has written extensively on hackers and digital activism. Her first book, Coding Freedom, The Aesthetics and the Ethics of Hacking, has been published with Princeton University Press, and she is currently working on a new book on anonymous and the digital media. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So, in your research, you discuss a number of internet-based collectives, including 4chan and Anonymous. So, what is Anonymous, and what does it have to do with a site like 4chan? So, Anonymous. Anonymous is many different things. Uh, Currently, it's most famous for engaging in protest activity, often online, not exclusively. Um, They have their roots, so, on this image board called 4chan, and it's it's an image board that is um, quite something, quite something because there is a, it's, it's a site that allows for kind of unfettered discussion and, and much of it is topic based. Uh, there's different forums related to things like uh, fitness and travel, but there's one forum in particular, uh, B, which is a forum that encourages anything and everything. Okay. <laughs> and it is there where the kind of idea or the current idea, the current manifestation of Anonymous was born. And one of the interesting things about 4chan is that you post anonymously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this kind of helped uh, solidify an existing ethic uh, that is very committed to anonymous speech and political organizing. But for many years, the name was used simply for trolling and internet pranking. Okay, so what, what do you mean by trolling? So by trolling, it's sort of, uh, it can mean many different things, and it's a number of activities where you're being purposefully provocative to get a reaction from someone else, and that might mean something kind of mundane, uh, like using offensive, funny language to more coordinated acts of trolling where people are targeted and humiliated beyond belief. Okay. And, and that's the name anonymous with a certain, you know, iconography, uh, headless, um, man, uh, jargon was, was used to kind of troll individuals online and offline. And then lo and behold, in 2008, uh, there was an interesting metamorphosis where the name was also used to engage in activism. So there was not as much overt political activity before 2008? 
There were these very incipient moments, uh, you know, where, for example, uh, a racist uh, radio personality, Hal Turner, was targeted. Mm -hmm. And he was targeted, uh, you know, in an act of trolling, but because he was a kind of racist uh, radio personality, people saw the kind of politics involved and I think also saw the potential for their own sort of power. But it wasn't really till 2008 where the transformation was really secured. Okay. And post-2008, what was interesting too was that um, different individuals started to take the name and the mantle to create different networks and nodes uh, to organize politically. So it not only transformed, it sprouted many, you know, heads post-2008. So how did you end up re doing research on these groups? And how did you manage to do research on um, groups that are not only web-based, but holds anonymity as one of its central principles? So I always wish there was a very short way to answer this, and I will keep it as short as possible. But it <laughs> okay. was really this train of kind of, you know contingencies. And it's interesting because a lot of what Anonymous does is also very contingent and it's really born from the accidental. So there's a nice parallel there. But yeah. but basically, during the course of my research on open source uh, software developers, developers who believe that software should be free to modify and distribute, people mentioned their dislike for the Church of Scientology mm -hmm. quite often. Some people were involved in protests, others were involved in circulating church documents. I didn't do much with this information, but file it away until I ended up in, you know, one of the coldest cities in North America, Edmonton, at the University of Alberta, which happens to house one of the largest Scientology archives in the world. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, you know, someone, maybe Zenu, is sending me a message yeah. and I should <laughs> look into this. And I had a, I, did, I started a historical project on Usenet and Usenet was a message board, a kind of uh, precursor to 4chan, but no images, a Usenet-era protest against the Church of Scientology. There was a very popular message um, Usenet uh, news group that uh, discussed Scientology, and from there grew very, very important protests that concerned uh, copyright, that concerned anonymous remailers, and a lot of geeks and hackers were involved. So I had a historical project. Um, and that is what led me to Anonymous. Because in 2008, when something by the name of Anonymous started to troll and subsequently protest the church, I considered it as a kind of second chapter of an earlier historical story. And that's how I got there. Okay. Um, and so if I had never done that kind of initial project on the Church of Scientology, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten to Anonymous either, especially because, you know, for the first number of years when Anonymous was protesting the Church of Scientology, uh, it was very niche. Uh, mm -hmm. I do think it had a huge impact on the Church of Scientology. Um, even myself, I was very secretive about my work before, but because of Anonymous, I was able to not be anonymous. Yeah. Um, but I never thought it would become like a global protest movement or anything. Okay. Um, and actually, that first wave of activism was actually very easy to study because these folks uh, organized under the, the banner of something called Project Chinology. 
and they organized street protests. And while there was a ruling ethic not to, you know, amass power and act like a leader and, you know, kind of protect your identity, they did protest in person. So it's kind of easy to meet them. But there was a second really big network that was born in September 2010. Um, and they tend to be more anonymous and technically pseudo-anonymous because a number, not all, but enough people engage in illegal activity where it's really important to remain anonymous. And then they tend to stay online and tend to also, you know, be really committed to this ethic of not asserting an individual identity. Were they willing to speak to you on message boards or was it more doing research on their activities? Uh, I spent... A heck of a lot of time on internet relay chat. Okay. Uh, which is, you know, think of it for those who may not know what that is. It's like instead of one-on-one chat, it's these rooms uh, where there are different topics or channels, and you congregate, and there could be anywhere from you know two to to five thousand people on a channel, and and um, these IRC networks became the main conduit by which I did research on anonymous and is also just very important when you're doing kind of any research on geeks and hackers because it is their you know kind of watering hole it's a really important place where they communicate and collaborate were you already well versed in a lot of the um, internet terminology or slang or was this something you had to pick up as you went along uh, to become more of a part of the group um you know i knew some and anonymous is interesting because you know, it has elements of like open source culture. People use open source software to run these IRC servers. And, you know, many people are committed to Linux, which is an um, open source uh, server. Um, and then there's, of course, the kind of cultural motifs and jokes uh, that come from 4chan and other message boards, which I was familiar with. Yeah. But definitely through Anonymous, I became much more intimate with. Um and then there was just like the anonymous stuff going on, like the internal politics, who's who, what are they doing? And that, you know, I got a good sense of, but also, you know, they are kind of cloaked in a considerable degree of mystery and secrecy. So it isn't that like I got total insight into everything that was going on. So were you able to get a sense of who actually makes up this group? Um, and do they fit that stereotype? of, uh, I don't know, the, the white guy sitting at home in his parents' basement typing on his computer late into the night? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I've met enough to not be able to arrive at a kind of precise sociological quantification yeah. <laughs> of anonymous, and that's one of the cool things about them. You, you really can't do that. Um, and, and in this day and age, that's extremely rare. Um, but I've met enough to say that, wow, I'm kind of amazed at the diversity uh, within Anonymous. Um, you know, it's not total diversity. It may not be the Rainbow Nation or something like that. Um, but it's not simply white, uh, young males. Uh, there are a lot of males, especially in a non-ops. Chinology was much more evenly divided between females and, and males uh, there were people from kind of many, many different um, ethnic backgrounds. Um, there was or is, I don't know about, well, actually, I'm not sure about currently, but 
there was a very active queer uh, community in the non-ops. Um, Class-wise, also more diversity than you might think. Um, and then also, I think another really important point is that, you know, when I studied open source, almost everyone involved was very skilled technically, either as a programmer, a system administrator, a net administrator. Anonymous, actually, not everyone contributing is technically skilled at all. Uh, it's much more open and participatory. It's one of the reasons why it's scaled. Uh, it's the reason why so many people, you know, feel comfortable there. And um, people bring many different skills. Sometimes it's video editing or design. Those are very, very important. You know, just participating by organizing, uh, hacking skills, uh, technical skills are not required to participate. Is there a pretty big age range of participation as well? I mean, I still think, you know, the, it's definitely uh, a youth movement where by youth, I mean, you know, from teenagehood to roughly 35 um, that tends to be the spectrum. There's definitely some folks who are older, um, but that's the spectrum. Uh, and, and that's, you know, is that a youth movement when you have from 15 to 35? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but it, it is, um, got that kind of spectrum from what I've seen. It always amazes me when you hear a story about someone who's 14 or 15 years old and yet uh, they can't even drive or vote yet, uh, but they managed to break the security of a major credit card or bring down some government organization, I mean, temporarily, uh, but to have the skills to do that at such a young age. No, that's true. And, you know, a lot of people who are hackers um, acquired their skills from a very young age. And uh, that's one of the things in... in the book I just published, I have like a kind of life history of, of free software developers and open source developers, and many of them learn technical skills as young as three. That was a little bit rare, but between six and ten years old. Wow. I mean, you must have such a high proficiency then. Definitely. It's very second nature for them. So with, uh, with the current incarnation of uh, internet collectives or groups that we're talking about, is there something that makes them different from past community forums? Uh, or past web-based forums, um, or is this just a natural progression? Well, when it comes to open source, uh, it's you know not something that simply happens online. I mean, people were quite surprised that very complicated software projects could be produced collaborative through these virtual free software projects. But you know, geeks and hackers tend to be congregated or congregate in major cities like Sao Paulo or Sydney or San Francisco. They live together, they work together, they marry, um, they hang out online, but they also see each other frequently in a kind of mundane way and then also go to developer conferences. Currently, there's a, a very big conference in Germany, the Computer Chaos Club. It happens every year. I mean, the 25th and the 1st because, you know, hackers don't need to hang out with their families. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's it's interesting because a, a lot of hackers go and there's actually a lot of people from Anonymous who go as well, although they're not going to be public about it. Oh, okay. Uh, so open source really fuses the offline and online. And it's one of the reasons why it's such a kind of robust world of, of technical production, of, of identity production. 
Um, anonymous, again, is very unusual, especially the networks that engage in illegal activity because they can't really meet in person as much. People do become friends. Um, in other instances, they want to become friends, but they really have to protect themselves, and it, it creates some um, very difficult kind of conditions. I do think that the kind of large-scale protest activity we see with Anonymous that is organized primarily online is, you know, not unprecedented. Uh, this has been happening ever since the kind of web uh, has existed. Uh, but at this scale, richness and depth, uh, it is kind of new. Um, and it's also interesting because while Anonymous, you know, isn't pure chaos, it's got its, its logics and stabilities, it doesn't, you know, because of the fact that they want to remain pseudo-anonymous, that they tend not to meet in person, it does prevent forms of routinization and, and institutionalization that you see, for example, with open source software, where that definitely happened. So what is the buildup like before an operation takes place, um, whether it's at the scale of threatening a government institution like recently took place with um, Israel-Palestine conflict or at the scale of releasing the personal information of someone who has done something that the group disagrees with? Um, is there some sort of community discussion? Does someone just take a lead? What actually happens? Every operation is different. Okay. So that's one of the things that's interesting. Although, okay, every operation is different, but there's only really a handful of possible scenarios. So in the scenario where you have doxing, which is, you know, the revelation, identification and revelation of an individual, it's usually only a few people who take that initiative and they're probably in conversation with each other. They may have worked together. There's these little groups within Anonymous um, and that doesn't happen publicly. It can't happen publicly mm -hmm. because it's either in, in some cases just flat out illegal and other cases kind of, you know, would, would spark a lot of controversy within Anonymous. Um, in some instances, someone, you know, does propose a kind of idea. This happened with Operation Payback, the second one in support of WikiLeaks when mm -hmm. uh, MasterCard and other financial services, you know, pulled the plug. It was really one person who kind of, I think, tweeted something, started talking on IRC, people with botnets, which are kind of uh, compromised computers that really help with the DDoS, started to get involved. But so many people were supportive of it. They started to join the channels and download software that could be used for a distributed denial of service attack. That was a very classic example of something where an idea is proposed and everyone jumps aboard. Operation BART is another great example of that as well, oh. where uh, in, in San Francisco, the uh, Bay Area Rapid Transit was going to shut off cell phone access in the station to thwart protests against police brutality. Anonymous got wind of this, started to produce videos, an uh, IRC channel, and it got a wellspring of support, so much so they even did street protests. Um, so it's just kind of different in every case, but definitely when it's full-on illegal, it tends to happen, you know, behind proverbial closed doors. It's not really behind a door, but in, in secret IRC channels or among a few people who are communicating securely. Mm -hmm. So um, we've talked a lot about uh, 
different operations which seem political in their nature, should the group itself be understood as a political entity? And would they describe themselves as that? Um, I think it should. And obviously the name can be used for different purposes. Although I will say since 2008, but especially since 2010, it's been used pretty much exclusively for activist operations. Um, people may not always agree with the nature of the operation, but but the trolling campaigns, for reasons that are not even entirely clear to me, have kind of uh, have kind of uh, waned. You know. Oh, okay. Um, so there has been activist operations, political operations, again, some controversial because they uh, pertain or, or use doxing as a tactic or hacking, but usually it's politically motivated. Uh, they're tapping into some deeper disenchantment, uh, and people are using the mantle to engage in activist causes. I've been really fascinated recently um, at the number of people I've seen who have basically no interest in the internet or um, software coding or any type of hacking, but who are holding up um, Anonymous as some sort of gold standard for political organizing. Um, sometimes people have been involved in movements like Occupy. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they became a symbol of a uh, movement and, and the most potent one where, you know, while there's people certainly who have more influence and power, you know, their whole iconography, their whole ethics is, is built on this premise of keeping hierarchy at bay, of not having a leader, and Occupy was really committed to that, so it became a kind of handy symbol uh, to, to kind of adopt for that precise reason. And, and perhaps also, you know, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but a kind of symbol for, you know, hope, political protest, uh, expressing, you know, dismay over the political condition, right? It became a kind of powerful symbol for, for those very things. In, um, in both your popular writing and your book, you talk about the importance of comedy and how central it is to, to these groups. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that relates to the political? Sure. So um, in uh, Coding Freedom, which is an ethnography of, of free software developers, I was just struck at how important humor was. Uh, it was just so abundant in this world from, you know, conversation to the level of software and code where what's called Easter eggs, little hidden jokes are uh, placed inside for you to find. Um, and I, I have a whole chapter trying to understand how humor relates to the kind of hacker habitat and what it says about their commitments to cleverness um, and individuality. Uh, anonymous also has a lot of humor. It's a very different style of humor. It's far more irreverent, far more grotesque, far more offensive. Um, sometimes that uh, definitely won't surprise anyone who's visited the 4chan site that you've mentioned earlier. Exactly. It's it comes from you know the world of uh, trolling. It also comes from a kind of commitment to anything goes uh, when it comes to speech. Um, it's, it's loud, it's crass, it could be very funny at times too. It's just not always as, as elegant and yeah. it matters quite a bit. It matters quite a bit. It's part of their kind of historical identity. It points to the conditions of their birth. Um, 
It's also important for kind of in-house uh, group membership when you don't have official membership, um, when you don't have to do anything, but say you're anonymous, you know, things like humor are particularly powerful forces that bind a group together. And, you know, finally, and this pertains to many different arenas of politics, but political activity can frankly be extremely depressing, uh, you know, disenchanting, there's a lot of losses, there's not a lot of gains. And, you know, humor helps to keep the spirit, you know, um, a little bit more buoyant under those kind of depressing conditions as well. So would you say that the use of humor is effective in uh, attracting more attention to the various operations? They can. They definitely, definitely can. Um, I mean, one of their most famous ones was Operation H.B. Gary, which was a kind of retaliation against a security um, firm and uh, researcher Aaron Barr, who you know claimed he had infiltrated Anonymous and was going to hand over names of key operatives to the FBI, and they went on a you know they gutted um, his company servers and uh, deleted backups and downloaded emails. And on IRC, on Twitter, they kind of hacked into his Twitter account and were spewing very offensive, sometimes very funny uh, messages. It, it got a heck of a lot of attention, you know? Yeah. People were just so collectively sort of uh, enthused by it. Um, but unlike, you know, groups like the Yes Men who really use humor in this uh, fine-tuned manner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Anonymous isn't always so fine-tuned when it comes to their humor. It's just sort of like hanging out of their clothing and all over the place. And if you're not part of this world, you don't always totally get it. Did you see there being um, other uniting political principles outside of the goal of um, know, freedom of expression and freedom of uh, the, the inter- use of the internet? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's elastic. I would describe it as elastic, uh, but there still is banned, and and definitely there are bread and butter issues like censorship, privacy, and surveillance and corruption Mm -hmm. that really get their go, and that's where you get uh, the largest number of participants um, shoring up kind of support or actually getting involved, and it doesn't surprise me. They're from the internet. They're of the internet. They're going to protect the internet, and the internet is identified with a certain cluster of values such as free speech and privacy. So this, again, is where they're going to rise up most forcefully, but they're not limited to that. Um, And I think some of the international operations um, in the Philippines, in India and Romania, you know, really give a sense of how far and wide Anonymous can travel. So is there any barrier for entry to the group? Um, I mean, could someone simply go and engage in an internet-based action by themselves and then say, this was the work of Anonymous? So on the one hand, um, you know, there's strength in numbers and strength and stability. So there's existing networks um, and you can, you know, contribute to them and anyone can show up. Now, if you've never been on internet relay chat before, if you've never participated in the kind of uh, culture of internet joking and memes, you're less likely to show up, mm-hmm. right? It's a kind of cultural capacity sort of argument. You know, we 
uh, have certain capacities and experiences and that will take us down certain paths and not other paths. And that's no different from anonymous whatsoever. And yet compared to something like open source, which I studied quite quite deeply, I dedicate a chapter to a free software project that takes up to a year to join because you're tested and you go through these membership procedures and you're vetted technically and mm-hmm. you have to also write essays about your your philosophy, right? It's just yeah. like a whole different sort of world. And there have definitely been people who are not part of the kind of geek milieu who like, you know, come across a video and go, holy shit, like, I, I'm inspired by that. I'm intrigued by that. I'm going to find them. Yeah. You know? So it has that kind of flexibility uh, built in, elasticity and openness, and yet cultural uh, capacities and experiences are going to obviously limit who is going to show up to, to some degree. So how has the government treated or reacted to groups like this, Anonymous in particular? Oh, they love it. They love it. <laughs> <laughs> big fans of it <laughs> big fans they they love it uh, <laughs> they're not they're not the hugest fans yeah. in the world um i mean it's different in different places the united states has a history of criminalizing the distributed denial of service uh campaign and attack under all kind of circumstances mm-hmm. um no matter what the kind of intent is it it doesn't really have place or room to see it as protest activity. Uh, in, in Europe, it's not so heavily criminalized. And it's also, there are some, some places like in Germany that have pointed to the possibility of seeing it as kind of protest activity. Um, there have been major arrests across the Western world, uh, from Romania to the Dominican Republic. I, I want to meet these guys in the Dominican Republic who are anonymous. Um, to Chile, to the United States, over DDoS, over the hacking. Um, I think it is kind of a, a threatening activity in the sense that, you know, while geeks and hackers um, require or their cultural background or technical skills and capacities, there's a heck of a lot of them in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a heck of a lot of them because they're employed by corporations, by governments, by nonprofits, by schools, right? Yeah. And so there's like this steady flow of individuals, um, only, you know, a portion who will be attracted to political activity, but all of a sudden there's this world that kind of has, you know, is kind of has a welcome mat for a certain type of person who wants to engage in politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the government, you know, when it has come to the DDoS activity, to the hacking activity, has uh, definitely cracked down, and that's led to a number of arrests. And then finally, in the in the context of the United States, there's also been, um, you know, informants as well, uh, which is, you know... Not surprising insofar as any kind of uh, radical activist group will likely at some point be infiltrated as well. Okay. In in some of your popular writing, you're critical of the way the media has characterized Anonymous. Could you tell us what you find lacking or uh, perhaps unsatisfactory? So maybe there's three um, elements I'm a little unsatisfied with. Mm -hmm. One is that Anonymous is primarily about and hackers. It is certainly the case that the hacking gets the most media attention, 
um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but again, what's so interesting about Anonymous is how it isn't these small hacker collectives, even though there's small hacker collectives within Anonymous. It's just so much bigger than that. And um, I think the fact that it's not limited to it is part of its strength. So that's one. Um, the second concerns it's kind of amorphousness. It's like, you know, sometimes you read these reports and you think that they're in outer space. Yeah. Um, and they're just completely impossible to find. And even those journalists who have talked to them describe, you know, some of their places of internet in, uh, of interaction, like internet relay chat, as the deep web. It's not deep. It's yeah. very easy to kind of find. And there is a kind of sociological stability to them. Um, it's still a stability that is very difficult to map. Uh, you're never going to be fully comprehensive. It takes a heck of a lot of time to really get to know them, but it is possible and much easier than certain criminal groups who do everything possible to remain like fully hidden. Yeah. And then thirdly, some folks have, I think, rightly noted that the government are, is going to use the example of, of hacktivism or anonymous to justify for greater, greater legislative controls uh, regarding things like surveillance. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, I can't argue with. My only point in response to that is if Anonymous never existed or vanished, you know, tomorrow, we would still have those. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's making them a scapegoat for the regulation. Exactly, and, and it doesn't matter. Like, it would happen anyways. And in fact, you know, we are in the context of sort of a really uh, problem. Like, there's already laws in place and activities in place uh, that we should be extremely concerned about. Things are already terrible. So uh, is this a case where the media is simply buying into the mythology of Anonymous, whether uh, it's both the good and bad characterizations of the group? Honestly, actually, I've, 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 I've been pretty impressed, to be honest, with a lot of uh, journalistic reports. I think they've done a pretty good job at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I the biggest one is that they tend to be described as hackers, but that's often a kind of editorial decision. And if you read the article, they're qualified. I think it was it was much worse before, and I think especially post, uh, actually like almost a year ago, there was a series of operations um, that kind of made it unmistakable that Anonymous was about activism. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it was an activism you may not agree with and, and, and kind of irreverent and dicey, it was activism, not hoodlums. Um, and I think that changed a lot of the reporting. And then there's a lot of reporters such as Quinn Norton, um, who, you know, were like really embedded really in there, uh, who report on it very consistently and that helps tremendously. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, one final question. So for those of us who want to hear more about Anonymous and want to continue to read your research, is there a plan or date for when the next book is coming out, or is that still up in the air? Uh, you know, I've got a, a contract, and it's got a, a due date. Okay. I'm not it is, because I don't want to jinx myself. But I am hoping that by, by sometime next fall, winter, there will be a book in people's hands. It's a... Uh, going to be a shorter book than my current one, which isn't even too long um, and uh, punchier and more accessible. And uh, I've got time to do it. Let's see if the muses uh, pay me a visit and stay uh, with me 
in the next six months. Well, uh, good luck with the writing process. And I would like to recommend your current book, Coding Freedom, to the listeners once again. I thought it was very enjoyable to read. And even though I had one awful semester of uh, computer science when I was in college, the book actually convinced me that there could be a joy in art to coding. So that says, uh, so it speaks very highly for your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you once again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.